Father God, as we approach this text today, I pray that you would give me the guts to shine the light of your word around this room. Lord, I pray, as I've prayed all morning, that with Job and Abram, with Isaiah and Ezekiel, with Habakkuk and John, we would see the Lord this morning and we would be afraid. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I uh, told you that I thought that the narrator had rejiggered the, the order of the, the text in 2 Samuel 5, and this is my primary reason. He was showing us how David defeated the Philistines and was side by side juxtapositioning that with the story of how he, David defeated the Philistines with the Philistines defeating David. And then the story immediately goes into the story of what happens to the ark of God. So God finishes what he said he would do way back, a whole book before, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. I, I shared with you that this was the text that we were going to, to I was going to preach from today, and I asked you guys to, to, to look into it, and I had several people that came back to me this week and said, I don't like that story. I don't know what to do with that story. And that's okay, because as you see David's response to it in real time as it happened, the first verse says, and David was afraid, or was angry, David's mad. Uzzah falls dead and David's like, hey, we're trying to do a worship service here, God. And then the very next verse says that David was afraid. And so both of those responses are clearly normal. They're exactly what David went through. Before we can dig into the text, I want to borrow from men who have gone before me preaching on this text. Jonathan Edwards, when he preached on this text, and R.C. Sproul, when they preached on this text, both began at the same spot. And I, I want to follow in their footsteps and kind of review one of the th reasons why we don't like these verses. We don't like it when we read verses like this. We don't like it when we read about Ananias and Sapphira. We don't like it when we read about the wrath of God. Because, and I'm preaching to Tom Harrison here, we have created an idol, set it up, and called it God. And these verses don't fit into the picture that we've created of God in our culture. God is our Papaw, who's a Santa Claus figure in the sky, who's not stressing on our sin, who's not worrying about what we do, and any time we want to go run and climb in His lap, it's all going to be okay. And that is an idol that we create. That is not Yahweh God. And so these kind of stories don't allow us to continue to worship a false god. That's why we don't like them. Now, in Hebrew culture, and Hebrew writing, it was a little different than it is today. Today, if I'm writing something and I want to emphasize it, if I want to, 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 to bring attention to it, the way that I would do that in my writing would be I could use parentheses, I could do italics. If I didn't understand how grammar worked, I could put quotes around it, and, and I could do all kinds of stuff to bring attention to words. 
I could make it bold. I could use exclamation points. In Hebrew, that's not the way they did it. They would use repetition to, as a way to emphasize something. We've see, we see that in the way that Paul wrote in the book of Galatians. Paul wanted to make his point, as I hope you remember from when I preached through Galatians this last fall. Paul was angry, and so he said, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so say I now again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you've received, let him be accursed. He says the same thing again. It's a way to emphasize it. It's a way to say, pay attention to this. We know that Jesus did that whenever he taught. If he was teaching his disciples something and he was about to say something he really wanted them to pay attention to, before he said that thing, what would he say? We all grew up hearing it. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Truly, truly, if you've got a, a more modern translation. In, um, in, the, in the original language, what he was actually saying was, Amen, Amen. We know what that is because we say it all the time, right? The southern translation of Amen is, Amen. And so he would say it twice as a way to say, Hey, hey, pay attention. We have another example of it in the Old Testament where... As you may remember, God said to his people, I set before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey God, a curse if you disobey God. And you fast forward a couple hundred years, the children of Israel thought they could do whatever they wanted to do. And their theology was weak because they said the reason why they could do whatever they wanted to do was because God's temple was in Jerusalem, so God would never allow Jerusalem to fall. So we can do whatever we want to do because God's not going to do anything about it. And in Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive lying words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They said it three times to emphasize the lie that they were telling. But that's the way they did it, by repeating it. We read in the book of Isaiah the most prominent use of that repetition. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read, In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered it with feet, and two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. You hear that? Holy, holy, holy. Never in the Bible do we read that God is truth, truth, truth. We never hear God being called just, just, just. Not once do we read the Bible say love, love, love. But over and over in the Bible when God is presented, it said that He is holy, holy, holy. The writer wants us to understand that God is holy, God is God. He chooses how we approach Him. He chooses the way that we come to Him. And He is holy. He's not like anything else. He is separate. He is other. He is different. He is holy. 
And so we have to understand that as we approach this text. We have to understand that God is holy. Because as we understand that, what happens to us starts making sense. So let's go to the story. It says that David arose and went with all the people from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Now remember that the ark of God had been carried into battle against the Philistines, that it had been lost to the Philistines, and since then it's just kind of been floating around. And so David, now that he's taken Jerusalem, says, I'm going to bring that ark up to God. And he's excited. He sets up the biggest winter jam that's ever been. He calls 30,000 of Israel's people. They're going to have a worship service. they got people with lyres and tambourines and, and guitars and all kinds of musical instruments. And they're ready to praise God. Woohoo! And they take the ark of God. They put it in a new cart. They, they're not giving God their half stuff, their used stuff. They have a fancy new cart built. They put the best oxen they got in front of that cart and off they're going. And David is singing and praising God. 30,000 of the children of Israel are all going, Yeah, woo! God is good! God is awesome! Woo-hoo-hoo! And as that wet makes its way up a hill, and it comes to a threshing floor, a threshing floor is an area that had been kind of flattened off so that a person could take grain and throw it up in the air and the wind would catch the chafe and take it off so that what fell back down to the earth was only what they could eat. And so it was a flat place on the ground. And so they're coming up this hill and I can picture in my mind that this, these oxen zigzagging as they come and then all of a sudden at the top of the hill, instead of continuing up a rise, it goes flat. And those oxen stumble. And they've got, you've got one boy who's leading the, leading the oxen, and you've got Uzzah who's driving the ox, and he's behind the ox beside the ark. And as they top off on that flat spot, the ox stumbles. They kind of lose their balance. And when they do, that cart tips from side to side. And Uzzah, not wanting the ark of God to tump out of the cart and into the mud there in a threshing floor, a well-used hunk of land that's going to be all muddy and nasty. He doesn't want God's cart to fall on the floor. And so as that cart tumps, he reaches out and st- to stop the ark from falling out, and he steadies the ark there. And the moment that his hand hits that ark, he falls dead. You can imagine in the middle of that praise service, in the middle of that worship time, in the middle of those songs, the place went silent. And there's Uzzah laying dead in the mud. And at first, David is angry. Doesn't tell us who he's angry at. But I think from the response that I got this week is people came to me and said, I don't like that story. I don't know why you would say that that story's had such an impact on your life. I don't know how that could be. I don't like that story. I think David is angry with God. Because it says, and David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. God messed his plans up. God, what do you think you're doing? And then the very next verse said that David was afraid. You know, when Uzzah's laying there dead, all of a sudden that makes your religion a little bit more real. So David was afraid. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? What are we going to do now? And so 
not knowing what to do. There happened to be a house nearby. They stuck the ark in that house and went on their merry way. D now is canceled. We ain't doing it. This worship service is done. We ain't going. Everybody goes home. You got to imagine what the people who lived in the house felt like. Hey, you're going to do what now? <laughs> but over the course of the next three months, the wrath of God didn't, wasn't poured out on that house. In fact, God, the Bible says that God blessed them. And so David goes back and he starts to take the ark back. Now, let's back up a little bit. The question might come to mind is where did the idea of putting the ark on a cart come from? You see, the Bible's not unclear about how the ark was supposed to be carried around. In fact, if you back up a little bit, you can into the book of Exodus, when the ark is being described, God said, and you will make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height, and you shall overlay it with gold inside and out, you shall overlay it, and you shall make a molding of gold all around it, and you shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side and two rings on the other. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the ring on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. Not only did God put poles in the ark to carry it, He also even identified the family that was always supposed to be the family that carried it. In Numbers 4.15, And Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp set out. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. They must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. And the Ark of the Covenant is listed out. That they're to carry it. That four men are to carry the Ark and put it on their shoulder and walk with it. He says, if you touch those holy things, you will die. So if the Bible, from the very moment that the ark, before it's even built, and Moses is told how to build the ark, where did the idea of putting it on a new cart come from? I mean, it makes sense. They made a new cart. It's fancy. I mean, just four guys carrying a bunch of poles around, that's not very nice. That's just, that's silly. Wow, we can get us a fancy cart, put some spinners on that bad boy, get some tunes throbbing in it. We want to do this right. Well, where they got the idea, it's also very clear. Way back in 1 Samuel 6, when the Philistines had the ark, they gathered together their priests and diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. So the witches and the diviners and the priests of Molech said... Now then, take and prepare a new cart. But take their calves away. And what they did was, if you remember, they took two mother cows, took their calves away, and let them go. And their idea was, if the cows go to the calves, then we get to keep the ark. If the cows go to Israel, then we know that it's God. But the idea for a new cart came from the world. What the world around them was doing. Not from what God had told them to do. 
I don't know about you, beloved, but that scares me to death. How often do we look around us at the way the world's doing stuff and think to ourselves, that seems to work for them. I mean, Aerosmith's like 80 years old. They have to wheel them out in a wheelchair and they can still fill an auditorium. Why don't we use their methods to fill this building? Wow, we've got to do all kinds of fancy stuff to get people in here. And when we get them in here, we've got to entertain them. We've got to make it clap, happy, slappy, clappy. We've got to get people up so that they can give something, so that they can, they can go walk out of here feeling like they're prepared. And yet God says to us that I am holy. You're making a false God and calling it me. And we know that's the case because around here in Etowah County, the churches are full and it's having no impact on the world around us. People are still going to hell. And every time something new comes down the pike, every time churches come up with something new fangled to do, half the church gets up and goes down the road. Because we're not preaching Jesus. We're not preaching God. What we're doing is playing a game. God, forgive us. And so here we see that David goes back. He looks to God's word. He says, how is it that we're supposed to move the ark? And he just follows the instructions of God. He does what God told him to do. He takes the ark, puts poles in it, gets four men, and they walk the ark. And now, real worship follows. What David was trying to create using the world's ways that was fake and didn't work, when he did it God's way, the rains opened up and the glory flooded down. We've gotten too smart for our own good. We say silly, stupid things like we need to unhitch the gospel from the Old Testament. No! Hitch her up! We need a taste of this! We need to know that God is holy. That when He says this is the way to do things, that's how we do it. Because if we don't understand that, if we don't understand the holiness of God, then the cross means nothing. And we want to act like the message that Jesus preached was so different. We want to paint this picture of this wimpy man and call him Jesus. And yet, the way that I read the New Testament is that when Jesus walks down, there's a crazy guy wearing uh, crazy clothes, eating crazy food, who's out in the woods preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus walks down the hill, John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And then after Jesus is baptized and he goes to the wilderness and then he starts his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, he doesn't change the message. When he preaches, he says the same things. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you bunch of brood of vipers and snakes? Repent. You know, we love, love, love to talk about John 3, 16. And yet we rarely ever talk about the rest of that text. And this morning as I was meditating on this, God just showed me this. So we, we love, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I love that. That is good stuff. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The verse cuts him off in the middle of a thought. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. We think, just like the Israelites did with the ark of God, that we can treat God like a good luck charm. And we can walk through life and do whatever we want to do. And then whenever we need God, we dig in our pocket and pull him out. That is not the God of that Bible. Jesus said, except a man take up his cross and follow me, he is not worthy of me. And when Jesus said that, the idea of the cross had zero religious significance. It meant one thing and one thing only, death. When Jesus said, except a man take up his cross and follow me, what he was saying was, you have got to die to the way that you are. You have got to die to what you want. You have got to die to your dreams, your hopes, your life being about you. You've got to die to all of that. And you've got to cry out to Jesus and say, you, it's about you. I will follow you. I will do what you want me to do. And then when we do that, everything changes. It's not about us anymore. It's about Him. It's about who He is. It's about the fact that we deserve, like Uzzah, to lay in the mud dead. And yet, instead of God taking our life, what He did was He took the punishment that we deserve for us. So all of the wrath that you deserve, all of the shame that I deserve for my wicked ways, Instead of me taking it, it was poured out on him on that cross so that he cried out from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We deserve to be forsaken by God. We deserve for him to say of us like he did of the people before he destroyed the earth and saved only Noah. Every thought of their mind is only on evil continually. I repent that I even made them. That's what we deserve. But instead, the beating that we deserve, he took. And by his stripes, we are healed. So that after he said, God, why have you forsaken me in our place? He cried out those words that are, oh, so freeing. It is finished. So that in him we can be free. Don't look away from us as punishment. Because that's what you and I deserve. Look long and hard at the God of the Old Testament. Because that wrath we deserve. 
Just about every man in here that I know at one point or the other said, what that boy right there needs is a good whooping. We've all seen it. We've all, and you know what? I'm sure it's been said to me that at some point in my life I was acting like a fool and somebody was watching me said, the best thing that that boy needs is just to be tore up. good to be loved, I hear. (laughs) And that is an absolute truth. I do need to be whooped. But Jesus took my whooping in my place. And we can't understand the cross until we get this. It doesn't make sense. If God is some pie in the sky, old man who ain't really worried about what we're doing, come on, I got a dollar for you, son. Then why would he send his son to take our punishment? So as we, as a church, come toward Jubilee, and I've heard people pray, heard it on Wednesday night, I've heard it all week, oh God, send revival. The only way God is going to send revival is when we repent and confess and change. Now, I've had to explain this like five times in the last three or four weeks. So I want to explain it here again. There are two words in the New Testament that talks about what we're supposed to do with our sin. If you're a Christian in here and God has forgiven you of your sins and you're still living in sin, there are two things that you have to do. We act like they're interchangeable, like you can take one out, use the other one, and they're not. They're two totally different words that mean two totally different things. We know what they are. The first one is confess. John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And when we use it in church, we've marbleized that word, we, we made it all fancy, but it ain't a fancy word. In fact, if you've ever watched Perry Mason or Suits or any lawyer movie, they all are TV show, they're all the same. The guy gets on the stand, he's like, the lawyer walks up, where were you on the night of March 19th? I wasn't there, I didn't do it. You know you were there, your secretary saw you. Fine, I did it, right? We've all seen it in every cheesy lawyer show ever. He confessed. He agreed with the lawyer that what he did was what he did. And so the first thing that we have to do with deal with our sin is stop justifying it, stop making excuses for it, and agree with God that it's sin. I have people all the time. Let me back that up. Have you ever watched a politician apologize? Well, it was a failure in character. It was a a terrible mistake. I'm so sorry that you feel like I should apologize to you, right? That's how how politicians do it. That ain't confession. It's not saying, I had a failure. It's saying, I stole. When I showed up to work and stayed on my phone the whole time, I stole from my employer. God forgive me for that. Man, when I'm in that dark room alone by myself looking at stuff on the computer that I know I ain't supposed to be looking for, looking at, that is not 
a failure in character. That is adultery in your heart. Women, when you worry and worry and worry and worry and you think that you could come up with the solutions, that is not just really loving somebody. That is building an idol of yourself. God can't handle it, I have to. And on and on we go. Confession is agreeing with God, saying with God that what we're doing is sin. That's the first step. That's an act of the heart. The second step is repentance, which is an action verb. I'm going in this direction. I'm doing what I want to do. I stop doing it, is the first step. And then I turn, and God help us as a church. That's usually where we stop. We tell people, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't, be, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't do this, don't do that, stop that, don't do this, you can't do that, stop it. And that's not at all what repentance is, that's only half of repentance. And it never, ever works. That we're going in this direction, I'm doing what I want to do. And then I turn, and just as hard as I was going in that direction, now I'm going after God. I'm following hard after Him. I have stopped the action that I needed to repent of, but that's only the first step. I'm also going after Him. I've turned. It's the word, if you ever were a kid, and I think most of the people in this room were once a kid, and you ever played the game where you said, hey, I raced you to that tree and back. So you ran to the tree, you touched the tree, and then you went back the other way, right? That tree is repentance. We're going in this direction... We stop, and now we're going just as hard in this direction. And so if you're in this room, and you're harboring secret sin, you've got areas in your life when you've said, God, you can have all my life except this area over here. You can't have it. If you're doing that, you're not going to grow in your faith. You're not going to see God answering your prayers. You're not going to, to have time in your life where, that you can remember those fires burning bright. This altar is open. Confess that sin that you're hiding to Him. You don't have to confess it to me. I remember growing up in a church where, you know, we'd all bow our heads and close our eyes with every head bowed and every eye closed. I see that hand. One of the most shocking things in my life when I'm about 12 years old, I finally had the guts to look around the room and nobody was raising their hand. He was lying. <laughs> I'm not asking you to do that. You don't even have to come down here and pray. But if there's a sin in your life that God put his finger on, deal with it. Cut it out. Confess it and repent of it. We deserve Uzzah. And what we got instead was the cross. Father God, I pray that you would apply your word to our heart. God, I pray that you would change us. That you would make us the people of God that we claim to be. God, I pray that we would fall in love with you as you are, not you as we make you out to be. God, I pray that you would show your face. In Jesus' name, amen.